The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love. That lasts forever Though His hope and sure salvation I will trust in Him Though the world falls around me I rest and know that He has found me Christ the rock is my Welcome all to Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. Well, welcome back to this ongoing series of episodes where we continue a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians using proper hermeneutical and exegetical principles. Our goal, as stated, is to not only understand the details of what was going on at the time this book was written, but more importantly, to understand what it is saying to God's elect in the church today. The reason, as stated before, is that according to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, that God's word states that the Bible is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Again, this is because our presuppositional approach and our biblical worldview as God's saints is that God is the ultimate authority for meaning, morals, truth, beauty, significance, and reality. Further, 
Our assumption is that God has chosen to reveal himself and his attributes, his relationship to man, his plan of creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and glorification via his Holy Spirit who breathes God's revelation into his word, the Bible. Now, before moving forward, let's review where we are so far. At this point, we've made an introduction as to the history of the Thessalonian church and its founding. In chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians, we see Paul, Silas, and Timothy who had founded the Thessalonian church and then thereafter, after a brief time, were thrown out of the city due to the strife between the Jews and the church itself who were preaching a doctrine which was in opposition to the Judaistic faith. So within less than a year of having left Thessalonica, Paul sends a letter back to the Thessalonians, having heard of strife and persecution, which was uh, causing great consternation within the uh, church itself. In chapter 1, we see what amounts to a salutation from Paul, reminding the uh, church of their election and their ongoing work of unceasing faith, labor, love, and patience, which we saw in verse 3 of chapter 1. In verse 5, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that ministry by Paul, Timothy, and Silas was not merely one of words, but also was accompanied by power through the indwelling Holy Spirit which was in their lives, and which the Thessalonians themselves knew to be legitimate due to the fact that the same Holy Spirit had empowered the Thessalonians themselves, so much so that they became, in verse 6, imitators, or followers of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, having received or embraced the word which Paul, Silas, and Timothy had shared with them. This then ended up our last episode, where we pick up in uh, verse 7 of chapter 1, if you would open your copy of God's word there. Again, the context of verse 7 actually begins in verse 6, where Paul compliments the Thessalonians saying that they had become imitators or followers of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, having received or embraced the word during great affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, he says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now here, this word example comes from the Greek word tupos, from which we get the word type. The Thessalonians were qualified by their spirit-filled sanctification to be a type of what Christ's true church should resemble. By extension, it should be the goal of all true churches to be a type of Christ's church so that their example, our example, spurs on fellow churches, fellow believers, to greater sanctification, greater love. Geographically speaking, with regard to Macedonia and Achaia, Macedonia would be in the northern portion of Greece, and Achaia would be the southern end, separated by the peninsula near Athens. So here, Thessalonica was an example to everyone in Berea, 
Athens, and Corinth, where Paul was now preaching and teaching. In verse 8 we read, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place the news of your faith toward God has gone out, so that we have no need to say anything. So with regard to this phrase, word of the Lord, we're talking more than simply letters printed on a piece of paper, whether they be Greek, English, or Hebrew. What we're talking about is what Paul would refer to in Romans chapter 1, verse 6. That is, the gospel, the word of God, which is the power, the dunamis of God, for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It was this word which brought the Thessalonians to repentance, justification, and sanctification. It was the fruit of the word in the Thessalonians which became an example which was like sounding forth of a trumpet. This reminds us that the word of the Lord, the gospel, the Bible, it's not dated. It does not have an expiration date. God's word is constantly and eternally inhabited and endowed by his Holy Spirit. God's word will always live, move, and breathe life into the hearts and minds of those whom he has elected to receive his word. Verse 9, For they themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. So basically Paul here is saying that the spiritual fruit of the Thessalonians and the effect which it had upon others in the surrounding communities in the region was the greatest resume proof of what God had accomplished through Paul, Silas, and Timothy. In particular, the power of the true and living God is the best and in fact the only method by which we are delivered from the service to the flesh, sin and Satan and idols to then turn, repent and serve a true and living God. Verse 10, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. Even Jesus, which the one who definite article delivered us from the wrath to come. This definite article here, where it says the one, tells us that there is no other one, no other name under heaven or earth by which we are delivered from the wrath which is to come upon all mankind at some point in time. Verse 10 confirms that Paul had already taught the Thessalonians the fact that he and they were currently waiting for the return of Jesus from heaven, who had, past tense, delivered them, i.e. the elect, from God's wrath to come, future tense. And so far as the language here, the word delivered in the Greek, ryomai, means to draw oneself, to pull to oneself, to rescue, to snatch up, 
to draw or rescue a person to and or for the deliverer. This would include both in a soteriological and eschatological sense of deliverance. Insofar as the wrath to come, clearly the phrase, quote, wrath to come, unquote, with Paul writing this letter in about 52 AD, means that there is an event at that point yet future where God's wrath will be poured out. So, looking at the big theological picture of God's wrath, we know that the moment that Adam and Eve rebelled and sinned against God, that Adam and Eve, and by extension all mankind who were in Adam as our federal head, were guilty before God and justly deserved the full measure of God's wrath. Moreover, we know that God's wrath continues to abide on all mankind until such time as the full measure of God's wrath is poured out on mankind. That sounds like bad news, but the good news is that God prepared a way by which, despite all of us fully deserving God's wrath, he would choose some to fully display his grace and mercy by covering and removing us from his wrath. So, from a proper and contextual biblical understanding, we know that God the Father chose to pour out the full measure of his wrath on God the Son, Jesus, Yeshua, who volunteered to endure that wrath on behalf of all who would be chosen for his propitiatory covering. Thus, we must say that if indeed we are chosen and by God's timing we have received God's forgiveness as well as Christ's righteousness and we have confessed our sins, then Christ has paid the full price for all sins, past, present, and future, and God's wrath no longer abides on us. Now, while God's wrath no longer abides on those in Christ, God's wrath still abides on those who are not in Christ. This group continues until Christ's return. By the time Paul is writing, Christ has already been crucified and God's wrath has already been poured out on Christ for everyone throughout history who would be chosen by God to receive it. This included the Thessalonians to whom Paul was addressing this letter. The fact that Paul tells the Thessalonians that they had been delivered, i.e. past tense, from God's wrath to come, i.e. future, could only logically mean that the Thessalonians and anyone else who would come to a saving relationship with Christ would be and will be immune from God's wrath, which is still due to everyone who has not and will not receive Christ. Thus, 
in terms of soteriology, those whom God sovereignly chooses to deliver from his wrath are delivered once and for all from his wrath as a result of Christ's finished work on the cross at the point in time where his Holy Spirit applies that to our heart and we receive it. In terms of eschatology, those who meet the soteriological qualifications will be delivered that day and time, yet in future history, when God's wrath is poured out upon those who have not by God's grace received Christ's atoning work. Thus, the future deliverance will either be protection during i.e. mid-tribulation, pre-wrath, or post-tribulation, or removal prior to, i.e. pre-tribulation, from God's wrath. This idea of Jesus having delivered us from God's wrath to come here in the above verse gets echoed later in chapter 5, verse 9. Quote, For God appointed us not unto wrath, but unto the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there are several things we need to point out with regard to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, which we just quoted. Number one, the Greek grammar. In Greek, when you want to emphasize the importance of something, you take the word or words in Greek that you wish to emphasize and put them out at the beginning of the sentence. In this case, the Greek words hotaio translated, quote, for has not, unquote. Number two, the word appointed, which means ordained or purposed. And number three, salvation, a purchased possession or property. So, Taken all together, as we look at the Greek grammar of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, the emphasis on the sentence as paraphrased should be, quote, For God has not ordained or purposed us, i.e. his elect, the outcalled ones, for wrath, but as a purchased possession by means of our Lord Jesus Christ, unquote. In any case, the theological implication of God's wrath being poured out on Christ as described above make it very difficult, if not heretical, to hold any theory wherein we say that the church, i.e. God's elect, the outcalled ones, those whom God has truly called and forgiven via Christ's sacrifice, will at some point have to endure God's wrath poured out on them. The two simply are incompatible. This brings us now to chapter 2. Chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our reception among you was not in vain. 
this verse is a repeat of chapter 1. In the case of chapter 1, verse 9, it was, quote, they, unquote, i.e. the Macedonians, whose growth served as proof of the Thessalonian faith being genuine. Here in verse 1, the Thessalonians and their walk in Christ was the direct proof of Paul's ministry being genuine and spirit-filled. Verse 2, But after we had already suffered and been treated abusively in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Here, what Paul is referring to is what happened in Philippi as recorded in Acts chapter 16, verse 11 through 40. In the chapter and verses, as already previously discussed, many Thessalonians had been unlawfully detained, forcibly, falsely accused, beaten, imprisoned, and run out of town. Now, those are clearly all bad things, but they were used by God to achieve his ends. And in this case, adversity and persecution always have the effect of doing three things if we're grounded in Christ. One, it steals the resolve of those being persecuted if so be they are truly called by God as his saints. Two, is an example to the rest of the world. And three, it is a means by which the world is ultimately judged and held accountable in the face of how God's saints are treated. Verse three, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity by way of deceit. So here we would have to imply that Paul was alluding to some group or groups of peoples who were exhorting their followers to some faith or belief through error or impurity or by way of deceit, and that Paul was contrasting the gospel that Paul, Timothy, and Silas were preaching, their methodology and their motives, which were different from these cults or philosophies or false religions then or now, which caused these uh, errors and impurity. And Paul is saying that the, what they had brought to the Thessalonians had no error had no impure motives, nor did it have any deceit. Verse 4, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not intending to please people, but to please God who examines our heart. Here, the word approved in Greek is dokamizo, it's a Greek term of antiquity when in those times precious metals were melted and poured into a mold to form a coin. The coins were then whittled or shaved down to finish them to the proper approved size and weight. 
Unfortunately, sometimes unscrupulous merchants and money changers would whittle or shave additional metal off the coin to increase their profits and to defraud their customers. Conversely, there were, however, a few merchants and money changers who had integrity and honesty who refused to do this and who only took or passed on coins which were of full value. These men were called dokamizo. So here, Paul is saying that he, Silas, and Timothy, God had chosen or elected or approved as dokamizo to pass on the true gospel, the pure gospel, without changing it, devaluing it for their own personal uh, greed. Second, the word entrusted in Greek, pisteo, it means faith or confidence or trust. So God had this faith or confidence and trust in Paul, Timothy, and Silas because he had put his nature in them. And then lastly, the word examines in Greek, again, dokamizo, same as before. So in this case, it's God who examines the heart of man with the same careful eye of integrity and honesty as the dokamizo, those who are looking for coins which are not of full value or are somehow been compromised. This also gives us insight into the world of the church as we see it today. How many ministries do we see out there, some of which are large, some of which are famous, but many of which are intending to please people first and foremost, to get ratings, to uh, encourage as a business model to increase the size of the church or the financial wealth of the church or the famousness of the church as opposed to being a dokamizo, which is to please God first and foremost with the purity of what he has delivered, regardless of whether or not it is pleasing to the people who are listening or whether it benefits them or us financially. We see these ministries are a dime or a dozen where people will preach any number of things in order to gain popularity and increase the size of the church while devaluing and changing the gospel as some outdated message that's no longer popular. In verse 5, we read, For we, that being Paul, Silas, and Timothy, never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Here, the word flattering simply means a fawning, self-serving speech. Again, how often do we see this in our modern day, where sermons, if you want to call it that, are fawning and self-serving towards the one giving the message. Or the word pretext, which means a cloak for ulterior motives. So it looks good, 
and it sounds good and it moves people emotionally so much so that they will give money to the church but ultimately the motives are ulterior they are not for god ultimately they are for increasing the wealth and prosperity of those in key positions they're ultimately for greed or for other motives they rarely have anything to do with giving glory and honor to god which is the purpose of the gospel verse six but we again paul silas and timothy but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children again the word gentle childish simple unskilled they didn't come in there as a great orator as a narrator as an entertainer as someone who has these great skills and the interest and the appetites of the congregation the attendance and the money or as a result of the skills of the one preaching rather the attendance the skills the gifts the glory everything that's going on there is a result of god's holy spirit which is inhabiting the message in that case i don't need to be handsome i don't need to be greatly skilled i don't need to be a great orator I simply need to step back and let God speak his word through me. And if so be that it is God, then God will move those that he has chosen to glorify him. Verse 8. In the same way, we had a fond affection for you and were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Here, the words fond affection is a desire, a longing of love for one's soul to win a person to Christ. The sincerity and depth of the love for their souls was, is so profound that they are willing to share their very lives. This is the true measure and benchmark of a pastor, someone who loves the congregation, someone who loves people. Verse 9, For you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and hardship. It was by working day and night, so as not to be a burden to any of you, that we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Here, what Paul is referring to is that in Corinth, Paul met fellow tent makers, Priscilla and Aquila, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, then, he re went to the synagogues where he reasoned in the synagogues from Scripture, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks of the identity and reality of who Jesus Christ was. Further, Paul here for the first time reminds the Thessalonians and anyone else that it was his habit not to be a burden to any given congregation or church. 
rather than taking some position where he was afforded a salary or being paid by the congregation, it was his habit to preach the gospel and then to go out and to work as a tent maker in order to support himself so as not to be a burden. Secondly, it was his habit to do this in order to show that the reason he was preaching was not for self-gain or for uh, making money, but rather for a love for Christ and a love for the lost and to share the gospel with anyone who would listen. We'll end here for the time being. This concludes this episode. Please join me for the next episode. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to write me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. It's my